This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following message is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading, Authentic Manhood. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Today, we want to address the subject of engaging your woman successfully. And if you guys know other guys, you know that some men do that a little bit better than others, don't we? And I want to start this morning with a story of a guy who really missed it. His name was Phil. And one day, Phil was out with his partner playing golf. And they got to uh, the sixth hole, and Phil stepped up to tee off. It happened that the sixth hole happened to run next to the uh, highway. And uh, right before he teed off, a funeral possession came by, at which point Phil steps back and puts down his club, bows his head, and prays reverently for a moment. After the funeral possession had passed by, he picked up his club and stepped up to hit the ball again. But before he did, his partner said, <clears throat> Phil, I've got to tell you, I am, I'm really impressed. I mean, that's one of the most sensitive things I've I've ever seen you do. And as Phil went to tee off, he said, well, you know, we were married 34 years. <laughs> we're not going there, guys. <laughs> uh, just the opposite. Just the opposite. Last week, we focused on what I call some long-standing wisdom. Do you remember it? Let me put it on the screen. Here's what it was about. Peter's words. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. For over 2,000 years, those words have been telling men, really of every stripe, every color, every ethnicity, that engaging a woman successfully is not natural to us as men. We don't naturally get it as men. We have to go outside of ourselves and gather resources for ourselves if we're going to be able to live out the wisdom that was given to us 2,000 years ago, if we're going to uncover what the understanding way is all about. So mark it down, letter A on your outline, just put it there. The understanding way is not natural for us as men. And secondly, this understanding way is not just head knowledge either. That's very important. Knowing what works with a woman, like we're doing here in the sessions that we're enjoying together, is only half the battle. And I want you guys to hear that up close today. It's only half the battle. Knowing it. Using it. Applying it. In the day-to-day -day of a relationship with a woman, with a woman is always the critical second half. What wins with a woman is not insight, not your insight, as good as that is. What wins with a woman is executing the insight that you get. If we were to put Peter's wisdom back up on the screen for a moment, notice he says, husbands, and here's the key word, live with your wives in an understanding way. A popular term today is the word execute. There's a best-selling book, Execution, that speaks to businesses of every kind that that is really the bottom line, execution. And we could translate Peter's words here, husbands, execute with your wives in an understanding way. He's talking about applied knowledge, not head knowledge. He's talking about a guy who can Put the stuff that you're hearing about each week into action, not just into his head, where if that's all you do in just a matter of a few short weeks, it will dissolve and disappear, won't it? As good as it was, as clear as it was, as precise as it was, it was right there. You said, that's what I need to do. But if you never put that into action, eventually it corrodes and falls away. 
Peter is talking about living this truth out so a woman can see it. She can feel it. She can experience it as real coming through you as her man. In fact, if Peter were alive today and he was here in men's fraternity, I think he might express his words this way to us. He would say this, men, win with your woman through wise actions supported by proven insight. Now, I thought since we're three sessions in, it'd be good to stop just for a moment and have a little heart to heart. Men need to do that every once in a while, kind of get man to man and talk about what this is really all about. And so I thought for just a moment, we'd stop and do that before we go on and look at the material we're going to look at today. I want to ask you a question. If it were just you and me in the room, this is the question I'd want to ask you. It's a critical question. And it's this, what kind of player do you want to be on our manhood team? What kind of player do you want to be on our manhood team? You know, every team has three different kinds of players. Here's the first. We have what I call the sideliner, person who stands and watches the action. You have the starter who is a vital part of the action. And then you have the all-star who stands out in the action. And I want you to know, in the year that we're going to have before us, here we are in session three, seven more before we finish the first semester, then six after that. In the course of the time that we have together, what kind of player do you want to be on our team? You want to be somebody who just watches the action? You want to be a part of the action? You want to stand out in the action? Those are the, the options, and that's the critical question. It's just good, just for a moment, before we go further, just to dwell on that for a second. After my sophomore year playing high school football, a year in which I didn't even make the traveling team, <laughs> when that year was over, one of the coaches pulled up alongside me. I will never forget his words. They were so penetrating because he asked me a similar question, except he asked it like this. He said, Lewis, come here. He said, when are you going to get off your butt and be more than a helmet holder? Now, I'm a sophomore. And I remember I kind of stepped back a little bit because this coach was not down on me. I knew he liked me. I knew he was for me. I could feel that he could see, even in asking the question, a little bit of potential in me. But he was asking me a heart-level question. What kind of player do you want to be? He was asking me this, guys, and I'm asking you, th you this this morning before we go further. He was asking me to define myself for me, not for anybody else. Because out of that definition, whichever level I wanted to choose would come my effort, right? You know, I remembered his words two and a half years later when I was at LSU. I was walking out on the field of Tiger Stadium as one of the starters for the East team in the Louisiana High School All-Star Game. And I remembered those words. What do you want to be, Lewis? I'm asking you this year, right at this moment, what kind of player do you want to be on our manhood team? Because out of that definition, whichever one you choose will come the kind of effort that you will give and the payoff that you will receive. Okay, everybody on board with me? With that said, let me tell you what it takes to be an all-star. Here's what an all-star man's going to have to master. Three things. <clears throat> Look on your outline. First, he's the man who knows his woman's key needs and is actively engaged in meeting them. Guys, one of the things that you'll get a little hint at as whether you're an all-star, a starter, or a sideline-liner is whether you did the project last week. You can already measure yourself. And if you did the project in an all-star fashion, here's what you should know. You should know what your woman's key needs are. 
You've had the talk. You've laid out some options. She's either confirmed or denied those. And then you've had the privilege of saying, well, tell me what your top need is. My wife was telling me the other day, she said, you know, I've learned that my, my greatest need with you is to have a sense of relational significance. Not in some big way, but in the everyday ways of life, you're telling me I'm important to you. And when you do that, you're meeting my top need. Do you know what your woman's top need is? Do you know what her needs are and how to meet those needs? That was the assignment last week. And you can measure your performance already in our journey by how well you did that. I've also provided, if you'll look at the back of your outline, you'll see what I call a men's fraternity women's needs reminder sheet. You see that little cutout that's on the last page of your outline? I did that just because I know in the day-to-day of life, some of us need a little help just being reminded. So that's there. You notice it's a cutout. You can cut that out. You can put it in your wallet, put it on the glass of your desk, uh, Put it in some place where every once in a while you can just look down through those critical needs, read the questions and say, how am I doing in relationship to the woman that I love? And maybe it'll stir a little creative action on your part to step into her world and meet her greatest needs. But the point here at this point is just simply this. The all-star man is clear about his woman's needs, and he's actively engaged in meeting them. That's the first thing an all-star does. Secondly, he does this. It's the man who knows his woman's personality and wisely adjusts to it. And then thirdly, the all-star man is the man who knows his woman's love language and regularly speaks it. He speaks it often. Now, these last two items are what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you're going, I don't know about those, relax. That's what we're going to do in the session that's before us. But for the record, this is what a real man masters. His women's needs, his women's personality, his women's love language. He's got that understanding way, and he executes according to that understanding way. But I tell you this because I can give you the information, but only you can decide for you what kind of player you're going to be. You know, guy over here who's the helmet holder, (laughs) or the guy over here who's the all-star. Got the picture? You make that decision and that call. Okay, we're here today to talk about engaging a woman successfully. And so what I'd like to do at this point is unwrap your wife's or your girlfriend's personality according to what you did last week. And this will make sense and tie everything together as you took those two personality tests. And uh, you're going to learn something about you in the process because you took that test as well. But our focus this morning is going to be primarily on her. I thought to begin as a way of background, I'd give you a little history on this personality profile uh, that you took with your girlfriend last week. It it really has a deep history, by the way. It goes back a long way. It's based on the observations and the thinking of a Greek philosopher and physician by the name of Hippocrates. If you're in medicine, you will remember that Hippocrates gave medicine in 400 B.C. the famous and enduring Hippocratic Oath. Hippocrates was a brilliant observer and thinker of life not only in the world of medicine, but in social relationships as well. And as he observed people, he came up with these four basic personality types. He called them this, the sanguine, the choleric, the phlegmatic, and the melancholy. Those are terms that endure even to this day because not only did the Hippocratic Oath endure, But these four personality types have endured the test of time as well. And in our day, they've been popularized by a number of different writers. In fact, I'm thankful to uh, Fred and Florence Litauer, who have graciously consented to give me the information, the testing information that I gave you this last week, and also some handouts that you'll receive when you leave here today. I appreciate them allowing me to have that so I could share it with you. But now we want to look at those personalities. And as we do, please keep in mind 
two things. You might just write down on the page what your wife or girlfriend's personality is, and we'll begin to explore those personalities here in a moment. But I want to remind you of two things. First, the descriptions that you came back with from last week, those descriptions give you the general tendencies of a person's personality, not a specific diagnosis. I want to tell you that first off, because this is just a general test. And what that means is, is that everything I'm going to tell you may not apply underneath that particular personality, but on a whole, it's going to be very helpful and accurate. And then secondly, as you look at your wife or girlfriend's test, most of you will notice that when you total them up, the scores, they gathered in one of the four categories. There was a dominant personality type. That's going to be in most of the cases. In a few of the cases, you're going to look at your wife or girlfriend's score and you're going to find that her scores, she had one and then she had another one that was almost equal to the first one. Or maybe two scores that were exactly the same. What do you do in that kind of instance? Well, if that's the case, it just simply means that your wife or your girlfriend's a combination of two personalities. And only the specifics that I'm going to give you under those personalities will help you understand how much she is of one as opposed to how much she is of the other. So with that said, I want to look at each of the personality types, starting with the sanguine. And here's what I want everybody to do. Just put down your pen. You don't have to take any notes. Everything I'm going to give you in the next few moments will be given you as you leave here today. So this is just sit back and relax and let's take a ride through these personalities. Okay, first of all, the sanguine, the sanguine personality. The key word to the sanguine is the word popular if you have a sanguine, if you said, gosh, my wife's a sanguine, I can tell you some things about her because sanguines are the happy, chatty, engaging kind of woman. It's the person who's very talkative, very outgoing, the person that people like to be around because that person is an energizer. The sanguine is best at making initial contact with people. They can walk up into any room or into any crowd and just engage people and people draw to them because of their bubbly, effervescent personality. They can create enthusiasm and excitement. They encourage and uplift others. They ensure that the group always has fun. How many of you guys are married or date a sanguine? Let me just see your hands, okay? Isn't that right? Isn't that who they are? This bubbly kind of personality who's the life of the party? They present as outgoing and engaging. And their major need is that they need fun and adventure in life. By the way, how many of you guys are sanguines? I'd just like to see. All right? Well, let me add to that basic profile some strengths and weaknesses. And as I read these, what you're going to go is you're going to go, yeah, my wife really is like that. Or my girlfriend really is like that. Here are some strengths of the sanguine. They make friends easily and they love people. They're often the life of the party. They make the home fun, usually in a spontaneous way. They don't like things to be placid. They like, to, they like action. They like to make things happen. They're the ones that are sitting there and suddenly jump up and say, let's go to a movie or let's get a board game out. Let's have some fun here. They prevent dull moments. They're cheerful with a good sense of humor. That's their strengths. Now, they also have some weaknesses. Because they're such an outgoing personality, oftentimes they can dominate the conversation too much. They're the person who many times talks too much. They never stop talking and let other people talk. They lose track of time. They waste a lot of time talking. They often are disorganized. They kind of live in the moment. And because they live in the moment, they forget things. They forget schedules. They don't meet deadlines, and they frustrate people, especially the family. They aren't good at meeting those deadlines or following through. And at times, they want to be on center stage just too much, and that can become real irritating. Now, that's the sanguine personality. And if you're married to one of those, or you're dating one of those, that's the whole pot that you're going to have to deal with. Good, bad, and so on. Then there's the choleric. How many of you guys are married to a choleric? 
Probably less, yeah. Because most men are cholerics, or a lot of men are cholerics, more than women. But the key word for the choleric is not popular. The key word for the choleric is powerful. That's the key word. Cholerics are often driving, dominant type of people who can have workaholic tendencies. They're best at motivating people to action, giving quick and clear instruction, getting it done. The choleric loves to accomplish things. They love the to-do list. Most cholerics have this to-do list, and to put that check there, it's just kind of one of the best feelings in the world. They got it done. They finished. They got results. Cholerics are good at leading. In fact, most great leaders are choleric-type personalities. They present as authoritative and convincing, and their major needs are action and excitement. The worst thing for a choleric is a day off. <laughs> Saturday morning, nothing to do. The choleric's up at 6.30, bored stiff, trying to think of what to-do list they can create so they can go get their high and checking it off. Here are some strengths of the choleric. They will lead and organize. They get results. They love a challenge. They love fixing problems. Say they, they are the kind of person that when people are talking about issues, they immediately see the whole picture. And most often, they know how to solve the whole picture better than others. They know what to do, often quicker than anyone else. On the other hand, there's some downsides to this personality. They try to dominate too much. They want to run over people. They come on too strong. They're unable to relax. They're often quick-tempered and impatient. They may be rude or tactless in a situation. They manipulate and use people to get things done. And they can often overwork themselves and push and overwork others even in the family. Then there's the phlegmatic. How many of you guys are married to a phlegmatic? I'm married to a phlegmatic, a real strong phlegmatic personality. And the key word to the phlegmatic personality is the word peaceful. They're probably on the opposite end of the spectrum from the choleric. They're laid back, easygoing personalities. And they're best at staying calm and functional not overreacting to a negative situation. They're effective listeners. And one of the things they love to do is just make sure when people are gathered together that everybody's comfortable and doing well. They're kind of the stillness in the storm. They're the person when you're around them, you just feel like you can relax because they present as so relaxed. They present best as believable. And their major needs are rest and quiet. Now, here's some strengths to the phlegmatic personality. They're easy to get along with. In fact, phlegmatics have very few enemies. They just kind of mold to the situation. They're just, they're kind of, their kind of theme is, we're here for you. And it feels like that. You like being around them. They're good under pressure. They present as the all-purpose person who's reconciled to the things of life. They have many friends. They're the kind of person that's often sympathetic and kind to others. And that's what draws others to them. And they usually have a consistent, well-balanced life. On the other hand, there's some downsides to the phlegmatic. Because they're so laid back, they don't initiate very well. If you're a phlegmatic personality, sometimes you'll find people saying, come on, let's do something. And you would rather watch then participate. Sometimes phlegmatics can even appear as lazy. They keep their emotions hidden. They're not goal-oriented. They're not drivers. They just like to be around the moment rather than leading the moment or even many times getting real involved in the moment. They resist change. Often they would rather not get involved, and because of that, they can appear overly passive in their presentation style. 
And then finally, there's the melancholy. How many of you guys are married to a melancholy? Okay. Well, we got a good balanced representation in the room today. The key word for the melancholy is perfect. Because melancholies are the artsy type, deep and thoughtful type with perfectionistic tendencies. They're best at planning and explaining details. They love to do things right. They want everything to be right. They're sensitive to the needs of others because they're so detail-minded. And because of that, they're good at numbers and charts and graphs. A lot of people with uh, um, um, uh, musical abilities or financial abilities can be melancholy personalities. They present as accurate and sincere and their major needs are order and understanding. Now, here are some of the strengths. As I said, they want things done right. The melancholy will set high standards. They will do things in an orderly and tidy and economical fashion. They're self-sacrificing. They're faithful and devoted. They're the kind of person you can depend on because, because they set those standards. They're going to finish what they started and they work well alone. They can, they can work all by themselves, and they like it that way. On the other hand, here are some weaknesses. Because they're so detail-oriented, so planned-oriented, so scheduled with such high standards, they can get to where they do everything in a real methodical way that begins to irritate. Everything has to go according to schedule, and they can drive people that way. They're hard to please, in a family, oftentimes, their standards are too high. They drive their kids. Their kids never do it good enough because of where their standards are. They can be too introspective. Not only do they turn those standards on others, but they turn those standards on themselves, and oftentimes they don't live up to them. They can be moody and self-centered. They can spend too much time analyzing and planning and oftentimes, the melancholy personality is melancholy because they're up and down. They can be depressed. Get high, get depressed. They can go up and down. Those are the four personality types. And all of us fall into one of those. Some of us fall real strongly into one. Some of us are a blend of maybe one and one that is uh, pretty close to our most dominant type. Those are the four personality types that every person on planet Earth is wired with to engage the world with. And if you just want to leave here today where it's clear in your mind, just think of it this way. Sanguine is what? Popular. Okay, just think of the word popular, outgoing. Choleric is what? Powerful. That's the strong kind of leader type. The phlegmatic is what? Peaceful. They're the easygoing personality. And the melancholy is perfect. Now, here's the thing. Can you name your personality? You feel okay about that? I mean, can you admit to yourself? See, remember, we started with the paradox principle. Do I get it? Most of us, you know, well, I think so. And now we're learning, no, I really don't get it. But now I want you to get it. Can you name your personality? You okay about that? Is it okay for you to enjoy the strengths but also admit the weaknesses? Because that's who you are. In the same way, think of your woman as a personality. Can you name her personality? You see the strengths there? You appreciate those strengths? Can you see the weaknesses? And what that's going to mean? Because you're going to have to adjust in one way or the other to those weaknesses. Let me give you Three summaries on personality that are very, very important, guys. First, you need to know this, okay? That a person's personality can grow and mature, but it's not going to change. Everybody feel that? A person's personality, your personality, can grow and mature, but it's not going to change. It's fixed for life. Your sanguine, who's real bubbly and popular and lives in the moment, 
over time, that sanguine can become more orderly, can meet deadlines a little better, all right? But don't ever expect the sanguine to not thrive in the moment and stop being spontaneous. Your choleric, if you're married to a choleric woman, she may get less bossy, all right? But she's always going to lead and organize because that's how she's wired. Your phlegmatic, your peaceful one, the one that's kind of more passive, over time as they grow and mature, they may learn how to get more things done and initiate a little bit more, but never expect them to be some high goal setter like you because they're never going to be that. Your melancholy may, re, may relax her standards a bit around the home, not force all the kids to make straight A's, things like that. But let me tell you, she's never going to relax those standards so much that you can be a slob. She's never going to go there. And no matter what you do, you're never going to convince her to go there. And here's why. Because personalities may grow and mature, but they're not going to change. They're fixed for life. And an authentic man is a man. The all-star man is a man who comes to understand that, accepts his wife's or his girlfriend's personality for what it is. He knows it is what it is. And then he begins to adjust in some ways to it. Not in a way that lets them become irresponsible, but in a way that lets them be who they are. Because there are guys who even to this day, after being married 20, 25 years, they, are still, they still don't get it. They're still thinking, if I put a little pressure here, if I get mad enough, if I intimidate enough, if I manipulate enough, I can change her. No, you can't. You're never going to change her. You married her. <laughs> and now you've got to make a decision on how to adjust to her. <coughs> Secondly, guys, know this. Honestly embracing your woman's personality and appreciating it. Let me say it again. Honestly embracing your woman's personality and appreciating it Seeing it for what it is, what it really means to you and its strengths and its beauty. And understanding, yeah, there's some downsides to everybody. And I got to adjust to some of those. And I got to encourage her to grow in some of those. But, but embracing her for who she's designed to be is key to a long-term love relationship. If you married a body that's beautiful, that body's going to age and wrinkle. And then all of a sudden, you're not going to feel in love. Many of you, most of you who are married, married a personality that you fell in love with because it was going to do something for you as you were going to do something for it. And that's going to stay the same. And you're going to have to make some adjustments, but it's there for life. It's not going to change. And receiving it and believing it as something good for you is the way, it's kind of the key to a long-term relationship. And then thirdly is this. Marrying this personality says something deep about you as a man. Now, this is not in every case, but in most cases, opposites usually attract. And you know why they attract one another? They attract one another because they're trying to balance one another or refine one another or mature one another. The reason many of you married an opposite is because you needed that opposite. Now, in my home, we're really opposite. I am a really strong choleric, you know, with all the downsides of a choleric. My wife, on the other hand, is a really strong phlegmatic. Okay? What's a choleric? Powerful. What's a phlegmatic? Peaceful. There was a reason we were drawn together. If you were sitting around with my wife and I, we were just talking, one of the things my wife would say is, I'm so peaceful at times I'm boring. That's what she told me one time. I'm just boring. Well, guess who she hitched her wagon to? 
a guy who ran off to Oregon with no money with her in a little Toyota and lived in sleeping bags for two years. Well, that created a little spice in life, didn't it? Sure it did. She had the ride of her life. It was anything but boring. But you know, at the same time, when I do those kind of crazy, wild things, you know, living in a tent and rafting down the Snake River with her, you know, at the same time, I'll push so hard that I'll burn out. And you know what I need? Peace and rest. I need to walk down on Saturday morning and I'm about to get my to-do list out and she'll come and put her arm around me and she'll say, Honey, just enjoy the day. And you know, over time, I've started listening to that. And you know what it's done? It's refined the choleric, polished the choleric, matured a little the choleric, while at the same time, I've encouraged, refined, and matured her in life. That's why God brought us together like that. There are reasons God brought you to that personality because resident in that personality are growth issues for you, refinement issues for you, and maturity issues for you if you can just see it as an authentic man. Well, let's conclude our session here today by turning to the last of what I call an all-stars big three. We've talked about needs. We just talked some about personality. And as I said, as you leave today, you're going to get a sheet with everything on that and more. Okay? But I want to turn to the last of the big three, which I call a woman's love language. And to start, let me, uh, let me recommend where I got this from. I got it from the best-selling book by Gary Chapman. It's called The Five Love Languages. It's available to you today in our bookstore if you'd like that. But he's going to detail what I'm going to offer you in the next few moments just in summary form. But you can benefit by these summaries that I'm going to give you. Every person has a primary love language. Every person does. And an all-star man knows what his wife's love language is and he knows the specific ways to speak that love language. He's absolutely clear. And that's why he wins with his woman. So what are the five love languages? Here they are. Let me just list them for you. You can write them down. They're words of affirmation, quality time, receiving gifts, acts of service, and physical touch. Those are the five love languages that we operate by. Now, guys, look up here for just a moment. Every one of your women have one dominant love language. I mean, we like all those. But I'm going to tell you, every one of your women have one dominant love language that they're drawn to. It doesn't take a psychologist, sociologist, or rocket scientist to present these to your woman. You can sit down and just read those five things to your woman and she can tell you almost immediately which one is hers. These are so simple. They're such good practical hands-on tools. But she can tell you which one is her. And when you love her in the way she tells you she likes to be loved, you're going to meet her number one need that we learned about last week. Do you remember what the number one need of a woman is? Affection. And when you speak her love language and she receives what she wants to receive that fills up her love tank the way she wants it filled up, she's going to feel like she's received the right kind of affection from you and you've met her number one need. And she's going to be wild about you because of how you're meeting the needs in her. Now what I want to do is just walk briefly through each one of these Five, so you can get a little better handle on what they actually mean. First of all, words of affirmation. Let's look at words of affirmation for a moment. These are just positive words that come out of the gut. They're not forced. They're not fake. They're the things that you would say out of the gut with passion that would build up, cheer up, and lift up your wife. And for some women, there is no greater expression of love that she would ever want from you than a word of affirmation. It could be anything from a compliment where you go, you know, 
you're a wonderful mother. Just saying that from the gut. You're a wonderful mother. Or a character statement like this. You know, you're one of the most kind people I've ever met. In fact, I think you're the kindest person that I've ever met. It could be a praise. She walks down the stairs and you go, man, you look gorgeous today. Or it could be some word of endearment like this. You know, honey, you make coming home the best part of the day. You really do. You know, for some women, and my wife, by the way, is one of these. She, she's told me on many occasions that these words of relational affirmation are the most important thing in her life. When she hears that, that's the moment, whether you feel it or not, that's the moment where she really feels loved. Some women call it the sex before sex. That a word of affirmation could be that to her. But for many women, it is. Secondly, quality time. And by quality time, I mean undivided attention time. That's what it means. Where you look into your wife's eyes or you share a moment or a trip or something that you're doing together where it's just you experiencing the moment and connecting as a man and a woman together, experiencing life. And like I said, it could be anything from regular time alone where you have just a weekly date night to playing together or common recreation. You like to, be, you like to go out and run together or ride horses together or hunt and fish together or ride motorcycles together. I don't know what it would be, but it would be something like that. But you're sharing life together and together is the key word. Might be getting away on some travel experience together, but you're personally connecting with one another. And for some women, when they're just out on the date night with you, because this is their primary love language, and you're just talking, just sharing your heart with her, at that moment, guys, she feels the greatest volume of love ever. Nothing competes with quality time. A third thing is receiving gifts. Receiving gifts. And as you know, gifts are a visual symbol of love. But for some women, receiving a gift is the symbol of love. To get a gift, big or small, is when this particular woman feels most loved. The size or the expense of the gift is usually not the issue. It's rarely very important how big it is, how important it is, how expensive it is. It's a gift, and you put some thought into it. And the more thought and creativity you put into a little gift or a big gift, it, that's what delivers the message of love to a woman who has this as her primary love language. One guy really hit a home run when his wife had a car accident. And uh, when his wife had the car accident, she went and opened the glove compartment to get the insurance card. And when she pulled the insurance card, paper clipped to it was a little note that he had put there months earlier. And the little note said this, don't worry about it. It's you I love, not the car. <laughs> he had figured out his wife's love language. Now let me tell you, <laughs> did that pay off that night? I'll guarantee it did. <laughs> then there's acts of service. A lot of women, in fact, I'd put a, 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 the greater percentage of women in, that rep, are represented by the men in the room here in this particular category. They feel really loved by a man when he willingly serves her in some small or big way that's really important to her. Let's take the phlegmatic, for instance. Uh, uh, I mean the uh, uh, melancholy. Remember the melancholy is real neat and tidy and all that, likes things real in order? Probably for the melancholy personality, the husband who picks up his things, if she has the love language of acts of service, cleans up after himself, those are little things, personal things, but by doing that, he's speaking her love language. When, she, when he comes along, this uh, melancholy personality says, hey, let me help you tidy up the house. Let me wash the dishes after supper. Does those kind of things for her. 
It's speaking into her personality, but also speaking into her love language. And when he does that for her, he's driving her crazy, wild about him. And he doesn't, he's not even aware of how much that means, but he's saying, I love you, I care about you through these small acts of service. That's what I mean by a primary love language. Then finally, physical touch. Physical touch. Some women are contact people. They loved being touched. Write this phrase down, though. All touches are not equal. For a woman whose love language is physical touch, there are certain touches that fill up her love tank and other touches that don't. She may be a person who just loves the touch of a hug. Maybe it's a kiss. Maybe it's cuddling together. Maybe it's a back rub or rubbing her feet or something like that. She can tell you what it is. But not all touches are equal, but there's some that really mean a lot to her. And like I said, it might be a hug or a kiss. Or maybe in a few very rare cases for the luckiest men alive, it may be sexual intercourse. (laughs) And if you're one of the luckiest men alive in this room here today, I don't want to hear about it. (laughs) You just keep it to yourself. The rest of us will deal with our stuff. (laughs) But look on the screen, guys. Those are the five love languages. And one of those, if you were to just list those with your woman, she's going to immediately go and say, that's mine. That's mine. And what she's telling you is this. When you speak that love language, you're giving her the very best. It's not a card. It's a love language that you need to speak. Now, those are the five. And uh, as I said, she has one of those. So how do you know what hers is? Well, let me give you three helpful clues as we conclude today for discovering anyone's love language, even yours, because you have one as well. Here's clue number one. You like to express love this way to your mate. You like to express love this way to your mate. Uh, Another way of saying that is this. We love others the way we want to be loved. If your wife is always giving you words of encouragement, she's giving you a clue that what her love language is, is words of affirmation. See that? If she's going around... She might be missing your love language, but she's going around always doing little acts of service for you. She's probably telling you that her love language is acts of service. A second clue is this. You ask for this love from your mate. You will hear her ask this from you from time to time. Now, some guys hear that when there's trouble. You may be doing everything right in your relationship with your woman, but if your woman is constantly saying to you, you never talk to me, you, ne- you, never, you never talk with me, you may be doing everything else right, but look, look at me, guys. What you're not giving her is the, the love language she most wants, which is what if, she, if you're not talking to her? Quality time. She's starving. For quality time, you may be hugging her, giving her gifts, taking her on trips, but if you're not giving her quality time, she's shriveling as a woman. She's starving to death, and she doesn't feel love no matter what else you've been accomplishing. And so you know how she expresses it? She starts nagging you for it. Talk to me. Spend time with me. And you can excuse that by all the other good things that you're doing, but I want you to know. You're hurting her, and you're not loving her the way she was designed to be loved. That's a clue. A third clue is this. You are deeply hurt when your mate gives you the opposite of this. In fact, nothing hurts more than when you give your woman the opposite of her love language. Let's say her love language is receiving gifts, and now it's your big 20th anniversary, and you forget it. You've just hurt her to the core because you overlooked what was most important to her. Maybe it's physical touch that she craves, but every day you walk out the door on the way to work already focused on your to-do list and you never give her a little hug or a kiss 
And that's what she craves is just a little appropriate touch. Those are the clues. And when you get hurt, really deeply hurt, at the greatest point of pain in a relational, in a, at the greatest point of pain in a relationship is usually the missing of a love language. So how do you know what her specific language is? First, you follow through with the clues that I gave you, and then you do these two things. And now we're finished. These two things. First, you talk it out with her face to face. And if you'll notice on your Die to Live application project, I've, I've given you the challenge to be an all-star to go out and do this application project of finding her love language. And how do you do it? Guys, look at me. It's real easy. Just take her out to a quiet place. Take your notes with you if you need to. And just say, hey, part of what I'm doing is I want to learn better what really meets your needs. You don't have to be a psychologist to do this. Just list the love languages for her. And if you want to give her a little illustration, that's why you might take your notes along and then say to her, honey, what is your primary love language? And here's what I'll guarantee you. She'll know it. So talk it out with her face to face. So you get it. Okay? And you'll know what it is. And then do the second thing. Get specific applications from her. It's one thing to know a love language, but you've got to finish here. And to finish here means you've got to know the specific applications of that love language. In other words, what are the two, three, or four things that you could do that would speak that love language in a customized way into her life where she gets it? And when she does, you know what she'll do? She will praise you and respond to you and love you in the way you need to be loved because she's coming out of the overflow of a husband who's loved her well. So here's a final question. What do you call a man? What do you call a man who knows his wife's love language and actively works at speaking it? You know what you call him? All-star. That's what you call him. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.